So this afternoon I want to continue uh, a topic that I began on Tuesday, though if uh, you weren't here on Tuesday night, you didn't, you uh, will not miss any of the point of this lesson, I don't believe. Uh, the title of my lesson is Pride and Envy. Uh, one preacher um, named Paul Earnhardt called these two sins the terrible twins. I think you'll see why as we begin to uh, look at them. Uh, we're really going to look in the, primarily at Corinth and the letters uh, to the Corinthians that we have uh, to look at these, at these sins. And I want us very much so to relate them to ourselves uh, because these sins are so pervasive um, and so common. So the root of pride and envy in the first place is selfishness which some have called like, the most basic sin. Pride and envy are also really two sides of the same coin. Uh, pride is, could be described as self-love, envy as self-hatred, self-pity. Both of these sins are all about comparison. We say that people are proud of being rich, talented, good-looking, etc., but they are not. They're proud of being richer, more talented, more good-looking than someone else. So if anyone, if anyone else or everyone else became equally as rich, talented, good-looking, or whatever, there would be nothing to be proud of. So it's the comparison that makes, uh, that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest, superior to those who you perceive as below you. And when the competition is gone, pride is gone. I'm going to quote a passage from 2 Corinthians 10, 12 that says, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. This is something that was going on in Corinth. And it goes on among us all the time. I want to give you two illustrations. These are not unique, uh, my own illustrations. Uh, I borrowed them from someone else. Uh, but I think they're helpful to kind of illustrate what we're talking about when we talk about pride and envy, especially when I mention that they are two sides of the same coin, or, uh, and why they're called the terrible twins. So the first illustration is about Joan and Jill. Joan, a Christian, struggled with envy and made herself miserable. She was especially envious of her younger sister, Jill. She spent a great deal of time bemoaning the fact that she was not as blessed as other people. As she wallowed in self-pity, her problems grew. She became depressed. When she measured her self-worth by what she saw in others, she felt worthless. She felt like giving up. On the other hand, Jill, also a Christian, was prettier, more outgoing, and more talented than Joan was. In fact, Jill often bragged to Joan about her popularity and her accomplishments, often advising Joan on how she needed to get a life, which made Joan more envious than ever sometimes wishing bad things on her sister. Jill liked the attention. Her sister's envy made her feel important. It fed her ego. In other words, Jill needed her sister's envy to make her feel superior. Jill's problem was pride. So you can see, begin to see a little bit how pride and envy feed on each other. Envy needs pride, in a sense, to have uh, the one whom they're envious of, Pride then feeds on envy as other people 
um, desire to be like them. I'm going to give you one more example about two families, um, in-laws, Fred and his sister Brenda and their families. So Fred and Frida were wealthy. Fred had a very good job. He lived a luxurious lifestyle. Bruce and Brenda, on the other hand, lived a very simple life. They lived from paycheck to paycheck. When the two families got together, Fred and Frida bragged about all the places they had visited, and they constantly talked about their son, who was a star athlete on the football team, and their daughter, who made all straight A's. Bruce and Brenda's son was no athlete and only an average student. Frida was big on marriage counseling and liked to advise Brenda on how she could improve her marriage. Uh, Bruce and Brenda grew to hate meeting with Fred and Frida. They would go home and complain about them, mock them. They would feel the anger, or you can feel the anger and resentment between the two families. And at the root of these problems are the terrible twins, pride and envy. But then imagine that Fred and Frida's daughter goes off to college, gets caught up in the party scene, she loses sight of her studies, fails out of school, comes home, lives with her parents, and brings shame on herself and her parents. On the other hand, Bruce and Brenda's son works hard and ends up becoming a brilliant engineer. Now Bruce and Brenda love to get together with Fred and Frida, and though the coin is flipped, it is still the same issue, pride and envy. These sins really are so common, and yet rarely confessed. Can you imagine Fred and Frida confessing their pride to Bruce and Brenda, coming to them and saying, we, uh, we have to tell you that we have been prideful, um, we've been bragging, and that's not right. It's created a rift between us, and we are very sorry about that. Um, we, uh, we want to change that. Or could you imagine Bruce and Brenda confessing their envy to Fred and Frida, coming to them and saying, you know, we... Uh, have not had good attitudes towards you at home. We've gone home and said bad things about you, and we uh, are, have been wrong in that. We ask for your forgiveness. That's what Christians ought to do, right? To confess those things, yet they often go unconfessed, yet are rampant. And when pride and envy go unchecked, they have tragic consequences. They destroy human relationships, and most importantly, our relationship with God. I want to look at uh, a few passages in Corinthians where we see these, uh, both envy and pride, coming about. It, as I started looking at, because I knew that this was a problem in Corinth from several passages, and I just started looking for it in each chapter I read, it started showing up everywhere. So uh, there's really more than I could even present today, but I want to present a few examples of where I think I see envy and pride. Again, envy um, is the idea of um, uh, desiring what someone else has. And I think I often have thought of it only that way. But it also um, is self-hatred or self-pity. Um, kind of the attitude that Joan had where uh, the, the accomplishments of others make her feel worthless. Um, and then pride would be the other side of that coin that, uh, that is, feels superior to everyone else, compares themselves to everyone else, and makes to make themselves feel better than others. So um, in the passage that Jason read in 1 Corinthians 12, I think this is probably the best example in Corinthians of these two attitudes. In verse 15 and 16, you have those who say this. It says, Now if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop, uh, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. 
it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. So you have some who consider themselves not to be as honorable of a part of the body and look at the parts that are more honorable and envy them and say, well, because I'm not that, then I don't even want to be part of the body. You know, they despair, they give up, they, they're hopeless, they uh, give in to hopelessness in a sense. And we have, though, Paul's instruction to them in verse 17 through 19. In verse 17 and also 19, teaches that the body needs more than one part. Uh, and in verse 18, that God put you exactly where he wanted you. God has a purpose for putting us exactly in those places. And what if the body were only an eye or only a foot? Uh, that would, the body would, would not work. And so it needs each part. Each part is important because it deal, deals with the functioning of the whole body. Then in verse 21, you see the other side of the coin. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. So this is uh, the, the, the prideful person who is an important, considers themselves an important part of the body and thinks that the less important parts are not important. I don't need you. Um, I can do this by myself. I'm an important part of the body. But in verse 22 through 25, the instruction to them is to give greater honor to the weaker members because they are necessary in a, in a, similar, way, in a, in a uh, similar instruction that he gave to the envious person. They are necessary, so give greater honor to them. Then I think it's really cool that in verse 26, you kind of see both parts um, expressed. It says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So the solution to envy and pride here is empathy, putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Um, and for the one who suffers, I think he's speaking more of the person who says, uh, well, because I'm not an eye or a hand, then I'm not part of the body, the envious person. Then the prideful person should suffer with them, put themselves in their shoes. Consider their situation. The person who's honored, we might think the prideful person here, the person who says, I don't have any need of you, they're already honored. Um, not one of the less honorable members. Uh, the people who would tend to be envious toward them need to uh, rejoice with them about their accomplishments, about their successes. Uh, again, this, the common solution is empathy, is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. So you see um, both of those things dealt with in this passage. I want to turn now to uh, 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to really stay in Corinthians here, but you can just turn to chapter 1. I spoke about this a little bit on Tuesday night, but there's an issue in Corinth uh, that caused division and quarreling, and uh, there were many actually, but one of them, another one of them, was uh, leaders. And you know the, the passage in verse 12 that says, some say I follow Apollos, others say I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ, or I follow Paul. Uh, so there was a division and how they viewed different leaders. Some associated themselves or identified themselves more with one particular leader than another. But notice Paul's attitude as he came to Corinth in verse 17 of chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Then notice a similar statement in 2.1 and following. 
chapter 2, verse 1 and following. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message, uh, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So the, I think the indication here is that Paul intentionally spoke without worldly wisdom uh, or without wisdom or eloquence uh, so that the cross would not be emptied of its power. Paul, I think, intentionally dumbed down the way he was speaking because he knew the tendency that the Corinthians had to think too highly of human wisdom. Um, the, the, the thing is, he would have never used worldly wisdom or incorrect wisdom. But he even indicates that there is a wisdom that's for the mature that he intentionally did not use with them. Notice uh, chapter 2, verse 6, for example. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming, who, who are coming to nothing. But then in chapter 3, he'll indicate that he could not use this wisdom with them. Uh, because uh, they were not ready for it. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So I think Paul explains why he didn't speak to them in this way. Um, they weren't ready for it because they're still worldly. They're, uh, they still think of human wisdom in too, in too high regard. There are wi there's wisdom to express to them, but they were not ready for it. There was not, there's solid food that they, ne that they uh, need eventually, but we're not ready for it. And uh, I've often thought of why, why is it that uh, some would say, I follow Paul and another Apollos. If you kind of put it in the context of what's been going on here, uh, and this is a guess, it's not uh, stated specifically, but my guess is that Paul, who was thought of as a weak, uh, suffering minister, he often has to defend the fact that he's suffering uh, because there's these other leaders that... Uh, were uh, all about appearances, eloquent in their speech, and some Corinthians uh, tended to, to gravitate toward them. Paul had to defend why his suffering mattered. And then you have Apollos, who was an eloquent, we learned from Acts uh, 19, was an eloquent, learned minister. And Paul was certainly capable as well. But uh, he was from Alexandria. That strengthens his, his resume as well. So perhaps some identified with Paul, some with Apollos. In his sufferings, Paul would um, have appeared weak. Uh, again, he uh, shows how that's not a liability, but an asset to his ministry. Uh, Paulus, on the other hand, would have appeared, uh, in contrast, eloquent, learned. So you can imagine how those who would have identified with Paul, perhaps, could be tempted toward envy. Um, and those who identified with Apollos, perhaps, could be tempted toward pride. So I think you still have the same kind of two-sided coin um, as you see how they divided, how they divided themselves up. Um, at the very least, you have some who took pride in human wisdom 
and you have those uh, who uh, maybe identified more with Paul, understood his sufferings, um, and didn't care that others were eloquent and Paul was not. So uh, following there in chapter 3, Paul explains, this is now the instruction for those, uh, for, for this situation, in ver- starting in verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Paul, Apollos watered it, but God has, uh, has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God, who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. It it sounds very familiar to the instructions that he gives them in chapter 12, um, that God puts everyone exactly where he wants. Each has a purpose, an important role, uh, but ultimately it's all about God's purpose and his glory and his work. So uh, moving on, turn to chapter 8. I think we'll continue to see the same terrible twins throughout 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to summarize uh, the situation in 1 Corinthians 8. You have this issue over uh, food sacrifice to idols. And in verse 1, it says, Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we, will possess, that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So you have some who he'll go on to explain, understood that uh, idols were not gods, that there are no such thing as other gods, there's only one true God, uh, that, so didn't have a problem with eating food sacrificed to these idols. They had that knowledge. Paul says, though, that that knowledge puffed up, caused them to be proud. And then you have others who still had what Paul calls a weak conscience and who did not feel comfortable eating food Uh, this kind of food. And so uh, notice, though, in verse 9, it says, Be careful, however, that that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So he's talking to those who had this knowledge that it was okay to eat this. But he says, even though they had the right to exercise, he says, be careful that it doesn't become a stumbling block for the weak. Verse 10, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So again, you see this idea of the one who has the knowledge, Paul says that puffs them up. And then you have, on the other hand, those who have a weak conscience or those who don't feel comfortable eating it, but they see someone who is eating it, and they are envious of them. They want to do that, and it causes them to, to, to do it. So you see that same mentality uh, here. Some who had the knowledge that puffed them up, they're proud, they, we have the liberty to do this, we're just going to do it. We don't care if we do it in front of you. Actually, maybe we especially want to do it in front of you. Um, and then, the, then that person is envious of the other. And um, in verse 11 and 12, then, we have Paul's instruction, his teaching to these people. He says, So this weak, uh, this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. 
When you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. So the instruction is that uh, you make them stumble when you, when you allow your pride to continue. Pride destroys. And uh, the instruction then is to not exercise that right. In verse 9, also in verse 13, therefore what, uh, if what I ca- eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that it will not cause them to fall. So again, the instruction is to not exercise that right for the sake of your brother or sister. Love is the answer ultimately, which we'll see he'll be more specific about later. But considering their interests, not your own, is the solution to this pride and envy that you see here. Um, And even in the whole next chapter, Paul spends a lot of time explaining that he had the right to be supported financially for the work of preaching the gospel, um, but that he had chosen to forego that right so that he might win as many as possible. He was willing to not exercise his right for the sake of loving people. That's what really the whole next chapter is about, teaching the lesson I think that these people needed to hear and what we need to hear. In chapter 10, then, he comes back to the topic of meat sacrificed to idols. And notice what he says in verse 24. It says, No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And then notice uh, in verse 32. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So the solution to this, again, is to seek not your own good, but the good of others. It's that same instruction we saw earlier of empathy, of love, of looking to the interests of others and not to your own. That breaks down this comparison, that build pride and envy. Uh, When we get outside of ourselves, we put ourselves in their shoes, and we see... Um, and we see things from their perspective. We show empathy and show love. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 10, uh, I think we see the same thing again. I'm going to give, give two more examples, and then the lesson will be yours. So in chapter 10, I'm just going to summarize uh, the first four verses. Uh, Paul talks about um, how... Uh, giving an example of the Israelites and how they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Uh, They all drank the same spiritual food, the same spiritual drink uh, from the spiritual rock, which is Christ. So he gives examples of how uh, what they had is similar to what Christians have. And one reaction to that could be, yeah, I've been baptized. I know Christ. I have God's word, my spiritual food. Nothing can touch me. I'm invincible, right? Uh, I'm immune to temptations uh, and not like other people. I thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector, like the Pharisee said. But their warning, that reaction to this would be verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall or take heed lest you fall. So the instruction to the prideful person, the person who says, yes, I I do share all these things with them. I I, I have been baptized. I know Christ. I have the word of God. Is to say, be careful lest you fall. That's the the instruction to the prideful person. 
But then on the other hand, in verse 5, it says, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, speaking of the Israelites. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So saying even though they had all these things, all these privileges, they had spiritual food, they had Christ, uh, they, they had um, all these benefits, yet they still weren't pleasing to God. They still fell. Uh, and that should be an example to us. So you can see how that would lead perhaps someone to despair, to say it's hopeless. If they can't do it, how could I ever do it? And I look at these people who uh, think they stand, and man, they just have it all together. I can't do that. Like they, uh, I, I, I know that I'm weak and I can't, uh, I can't stand. Well, the instruction for them, those who maybe would be tempted to be envious, is verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So self-pity is not an excuse. Uh, God gives the way of escape, even to those who would despair and say, I can't do it. Look at all these people who, the the prideful people who... uh, look so good, they have it all together, I can't do that, I'm just going to throw my hands up, right? The instruction is, yes, you can, because God is faithful, and he'll, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. So again, I think you still see that same uh, two-part uh, pride and envy here in chapter 10. We're going to look now at chapter 11. Some of these, I, would, I, I will admit, are more clear than others, and I think this one is super clear. Um, it's really really interesting to see why there were divisions among them about the Lord's Supper. So in verse 17, it says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do not do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and I, to some extent, I believe it. No doubt that there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval? So, when, so then, when you have come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So I think the situation you have here in Corinth is that they would come together to eat the Lord's Supper, but it wasn't really the Lord's Supper that they were eating, right? Uh, there was no communion there because some were going, I, I take it that they maybe brought their own meal, but uh, they, some would go ahead who had plenty. Some apparently couldn't bring anything, and so they just went hungry because no one was sharing. There was no communion, you might say. Uh, this was not the Lord's Supper. They weren't sharing the things that they had. The question, though, is why is it that the person who pl- clearly had an abundance, he was getting drunk even, why is it the person who clearly had an abundance was not sharing with the one who was hungry? Notice, I, I, I overlooked this uh, for many years. In verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? So I think perhaps, what he's accusing them of is saying, some of you are getting drunk, you have an abundance, but you don't give to the hungry person, because the person who has nothing, 
because you intend to humili humiliate them, to shame them. Again, you have that same idea of the prideful person. I have plenty, um, and I'm not going to give to you because I, because I want to feed off of your humiliation, your envy of me. And then perhaps uh, you have these ones who are hungry who are looking at the ones uh, who have plenty, envying them. Um, uh, but certainly you have the, those who are prideful intending to humiliate those who had nothing. Uh, which is the exact opposite of what the whole Lord's Supper is about, right? This is when we remember the Lord's death. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which we just read, um, where he completely selflessly gave himself up. And yet now these are, uh, as they take the Lord's Supper, guilty of pride and envy. Envy is what put Jesus to the cross. Um, yet you see these same attitudes here um, in the Lord's Supper in Corinth. So I think, uh, again, we continue to see uh, these same terrible twins. Uh, finally, I just want to look uh, at chapter 13, where he deals with love. You can see now even more so why love was such an important topic um, for, for the Corinthians and for us. Two of the, the qualities in verse 4 of love is that it does not envy, it does not boast, is not proud. I think those are put together right next to each other for, for a reason uh, because they build off of each other. And so the, the, the solution, as we said before, is empathy, is love, is considering the interests of others, looking to the good of others and not to ourself. Uh, we must die to self. Again, selfishness is the root of pride and envy. And I want to read for you um, something I, someone else found in an article that I typed out as they spoke it uh, that I think is really, really helpful and uh, about dying to self. And again, the solution to these issues that we all have with pride and envy. It says, when you are forgotten or neglected or purposefully set at naught and you don't, and you don't stink and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself. But take it all in patient, loving silence. That is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any impunctuality, or any annoyance, when you stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as, Christ, as Jesus endured, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any society, any raiment, any incorruption or interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or itch after commendations, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God why your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances. That is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to self. Uh, that uh, really woke up my sleepy soul. And I, I realize that many times I have been guilty of, of envy and pride. Um, 
the root of which is selfishness and, uh, and was just maybe not even aware of it, not, not aware of, of the ways in which I was. I want to end with this. Uh, we, uh, we know just from history uh, from a man named Clement who uh, either wrote around 68 AD or around 97 AD, um, depending on whether it was referring to the persecution in his letter, it was referring to Nero or Domitian, um, wrote to Corinth, the same church, uh, probably not, uh, not too long after uh, Paul wrote these, these letters. So while obviously that is not scripture, it is history. And he records that this was still an issue in Corinth. And much of his letter is about envy and teaching the Corinthians humility. And he uses example after example of um, envy and pride in the Old Testament uh, and to teach them. So it's something that, again, if unchecked, destroys us. It continues. And uh, it's ultimately something that is every man's battle, every human's battle. Uh, there was one, uh, I was actually going to quote more of it, uh, but for time's sake and because I forgot the book, primarily the second part of that, um, I, uh, I'm just going to quote one line. He says this, for we are struggling on the same arena. This is in the, top, in the context of talking about envy. He says, for we are struggling on the same arena and the same conflict is assigned to both of us, both the Corinthians and uh, the, the uh, Clement and the Romans that he was writing from. So I, I truly uh, agree that this is every human's battle. Um, and uh, if we don't think so, then we would neatly and clearly fall in the pride category. And uh, so again, pride and envy are, are, are such common sins yet so really confessed. And um, we just maybe think about ways in which this, uh, we have all been guilty of this and ways in which uh, you may need to confess that to someone. Um, but I hope this has been encouraging to you all.